Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. On the show this week, anger continues over the North Sea oil and gas tax hike. This is the third change in the tax regime for the North Sea in 10 years. And companies are saying it's way too unstable and it's no basis for investment. There is a lot of important issues raised by this that have not been addressed. Feed in tariffs for solar. The industry is very disappointed by the government's proposals, which would reduce the feed in tariffs paid to any solar arrays generating more than 50 kilowatts. These measures would come into effect on the 1st of August, but the industry wants them to be changed. Air passengers face higher prices from rising costs of jet fuel. We're seeing this sort of thing happening around the world, and it's interesting because what that means is that the airlines feel that there's strong enough demand for them to push up fares. In other words, the economy is strong enough. And your comments? The most discussion we've had on any issue this week has been on marine energy, particularly in the UK, because of a report out by the Carbon Trust this week. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show in the North Sea and the continuing anger over the oil and gas tax hike as announced in the budget in the UK in March. Joining me in the studio to discuss this is Lex writer Vincent Boland. Uh, now, Vincent, thanks very much for joining us. Since George Osborne, the Chancellor, announced the rise in the supplementary tax take in March, um, the industry has been up in arms about it, warning of investment due to drop in the North Sea, um, warning that they're going to pull out from the North Sea and invest elsewhere. Um, what, do you, what do you make of all this noise? I think that a lot of it is just noise. It's the usual sort of corporate reaction to any kind of uh, increase in taxes. But I do think that there is an issue emerging that is very interesting and could be the basis for perhaps a solution to this problem ultimately, which is to distinguish between the oil companies and the gas companies. I think the economics of gas and the economics of oil are very different. And I think Centrica, which said at the weekend that it may not restart the South Morecambe field in the Irish Sea, they've shut it for maintenance. They may not restart it when it's ready because it simply isn't profitable at the new rate, which they claim is 81%. So I think that putting it in that context has sort of highlighted the extent to which actually a lot of the gas assets that are affected by the supplementary tax are diminishing assets. They're at the end of their lives and keeping them going at an elevated rate of tax just doesn't make sense for a lot of corporations. And I think Centrica has made that point clearly. And I think that could be where you might see some kind of agreement between the companies and the government ultimately, although we're a long way from that. Just to recap, the economics are very different. I mean, the oil price is, what, $120 a barrel at the moment, and gas is trading at, what, $55, $50 a barrel of oil equivalent. So it's about half. And just in terms of a sort of compromise, have you looked at where they could go? I think Osborne left open a little bit of wiggle room for himself, saying that he might include something else in the field allowance tax. Yes, I think there's plenty of scope for offsetting some of the more onerous effects of the tax increase through other measures that the, the Treasury can, can give to oil companies in terms of writing down assets and all the kind of things. So there's, there is scope there. But I think the principle is the interesting thing. And Britain's oil and gas assets are maturing 
declining assets, right? And I think that, you know, it's a legitimate question as to whether they really ought to be the subject of further taxes because they already pay an enormous, I think it's 20% of the entire UK tax take in a single year comes from oil and gas activity. So they, they already pay enormous amounts of tax. The trouble for the government is that it's kind of a, se- a self-inflicted problem for them because they raise the supplementary tax on the North Sea as a way to offset this cut of one pence in the duty that people pay at the pumps. Now, you might as well be Don Quixote tilting at windmills as trying to sort of keep the retail price of petrol down. Cutting it by a penny is entirely futile. And, you know, as the Lex column argues this morning on FT.com, the retail price of petrol rose by three pence in April alone in any case. So the one pence cut in duty got entirely lost in that. So I think that the government has created a problem we didn't really need to do. And just finally, I mean, if you're talking about Morecambe Bay owned by Centrico, obviously you said it's an, it's an old basin. Should we really worry about that then? Or what are they saying about future investment? But the government talks a lot about energy security. So Britain is very dependent on gas and it already ex- imports 50% of it. And I think that you could argue that really every incentive should be given to companies to harvest every single drop of gas in British waters, simply to keep the import bill down and to keep the balance between imported and domestic gas even, because that is the basis of one's in, of a country's energy security. So I think that there are all kinds of strategic questions that appear to have been ignored in coming up with this increase in tax in the first place. And I think that this is the third change in the tax regime for the North Sea in 10 years. And companies are saying, you know, it's way too unstable and it's no basis for investment. So I think that there is a lot of important issues raised by this that have not been addressed. Well, we'll keep watching the issue. I think the Energy Select Committee is hearing evidence today on the subject, so we'll be reporting on that in tomorrow's paper. Thanks very much. Let's stay in the UK for a second topic today, the government's consultation on feed-in tariffs for the solar industry. Joining me is David Blair, the FT's energy correspondent. Now, David, I think the consultation period ends this coming Friday. And what's been happening? What's the industry been saying about these um, the feed-in tariffs? The industry is very disappointed by the government's proposals, which would reduce the feed-in tariffs paid to any solar arrays generating more than 50 kilowatts. In other words, it would reduce them for any of the medium or large-scale solar arrays. Now, these measures would come into effect on the 1st of August, uh, but the industry wants them to be changed. But quite an interesting split has developed within the industry. One group are going so far as to take the government to court. Seven companies and three individuals filed a case against the government last month, suggesting that its action was actually illegal. But another group are pursuing a compromise, and they're working behind the scenes to get the government to water down its proposals. Is that group made up of companies that have got more sway or how are they sort of split? I mean, are they are they the sort of seen the most persuasive group? The companies which are pursuing a more consensus building course tend to be those who've applied for big solar arrays in Cornwall. There's a cluster of companies which took advantage of Cornwall Council's very liberal attitude towards granting planning applications for these installations. And in total, they came up with about 35 separate planning applications for big schemes, which would be affected by the government's changes. And so there's a potential compromise on the table. And I understand the essential terms of the compromise are that instead of having a situation where, as you do now, uh, one company might submit four or five planning applications for four or five separate solar arrays, you would have a simple principle of one company, one planning application. So everyone will get one big development under the previous subsidy regime. 
And the result of that would be that you would save at least a core of the industry and keep open the option of future expansion. But you would also reduce the cost of the subsidies, which is the government's prime concern. So I understand that if this proposal were to be accepted, instead of in Cornwall having 35 big schemes go ahead, you would probably reduce that to somewhere between 10 and 15. So it would be a big reduction in, in the obligation, the cost obligation for the government. And, and what kind of companies are we talking about? Are they sort of small um, sort of startup companies that are focused only on solar? Or are we also talking about the likes of, I don't know, oil companies like Shell, BP? We're talking here about small startup companies. We're talking really about entities which only came into existence in the space of the last year or so, some of which are entirely virtual entities, some of which actually have established offices and staff and so forth. But their argument would be that having a nascent industry like this at a certain level is crucial for the future of renewable energy in the UK because that way you keep open the option of future expansion of solar. And their central criticism of the government's proposals is that by making medium and large-scale arrays effectively impossible, you rule out a big role for solar at any stage in the future. Do the changes, the proposed changes, how do they affect the government's target for renewable energy as a whole? Solar on any forecast, would be one of the smallest contributors to the government's renewable energy targets. Um, wind, particularly offshore wind, will be by far the biggest contributor. So I think in fairness to the government, they can credibly argue that this review of their subsidy system will not influence their ability to hit the targets or not, or will not jeopardise their ability to hit the renewable energy targets. In a sense, I mean, the renewable energy targets apply to 2020. In a sense, the case against what the government is doing takes a longer term perspective. The danger would be that you put the UK out of the solar energy business for the foreseeable future. And if, say, in 20 to 30 years time, you wanted a big expansion, you wouldn't have that option. Um, so the case that the companies make is that if you review the scheme, at least we can preserve a basis for, for future expansion. Thanks very much, David. I know you've got a piece um, on the issue that's going into the paper tomorrow, so listeners can look out for that um, in tomorrow's paper. Um, and also just to, to recap, the consultation ends this coming Friday. Let's move on now on the impact that rising oil prices are having on consumers, particularly air passengers in the US. Polita Clark, the FT's aerospace correspondent, joins us to tell us more. What's happened to airfares in the US on the back of the high oil prices? Since oil prices started going up and pushing up, therefore, jet fuel prices, we've seen a series of fare increases in the US, in fact, not just the US, around the world. Some of the largest, in fact, have happened here in Britain, where British Airways has lifted the fuel sur surcharge on its flights. We're seeing this sort of thing happening around the world, and it's interesting because what that means is that the airlines feel that there's strong enough demand for them to push up fares. In other words, the economy's strong enough for them to do this. The last time we saw oil prices going up to this extent in 2008, we were in the depths of the financial crisis, the economic downturn. They weren't able to pass on the higher fuel costs to their passengers. This time they are able to do it. The interesting question that's occupying a lot of analysts is how long they're going to actually be able to do this. Clearly, they can do this as long as there's going to be enough demand but the high oil prices, the high fuel prices themselves as they feed into the economy can end up depressing demand so that they inevitably, if prices stay high and in fact increase, they're going to face a real crunch time. Fuel costs are higher now than the average through the whole of 2008 because it's all coming on the back of continuing unrest in the Middle East and there's still some feed through that we're seeing uh, from the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Okay, thanks very much. And finally, Kieran Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Kieran, what's been going on in terms of the discussions online? 
Well, before Easter, we had a Q&A session with Cameron O'Reilly and Steve Cunningham. They are the CEO and CEO UK and Ireland, respectively, of Landis and Gear, the world's biggest maker of smart meters, which are these devices that you can put in your home and tell you in real time how much energy you're using, how much it's costing. They both said that the UK is being too pessimistic in its estimates for how much efficiency savings that smart meters can bring. They reckon these devices could make us 15% more energy efficient. To a certain extent, they would say that they want to sell these devices, but it gives them a tough target to aim for. We've also had some discussion about the oil spill containment system, which is being developed over in the US. And we've had Sheila McNulty, uh, reporter over in Houston, asking why that system can't be used in places other than just the Gulf of Mexico. But actually, the most discussion we've had on any issue this week has been on marine energy, which has been, particularly in the UK, has been a focus because of a report out by the Carbon Trust this week. It said UK companies could benefit by £76 billion from this nascent market, could create up to 68 thousand jobs and there's a market out there worth up to 40 billion pounds per annum by 2050 if if companies can ramp up to the extent that they see there's a potential the problem is that if the market was to grow that big it would be actually at the expense of other renewables and they would have to start eating into the market share of things like wind or solar power that got some of our readers quite uh, quite hot under the collar but others say this would make sense if we were to back marine energy ahead of things like solar and for example in the uk we have a long coastline we've already got a competitive advantage with the technology we have in marine energy and some of our readers have said well look we should push for that thanks very much karen and if you'd like to have your say log on and post a comment on energy source and that's all we have time for today all that's left is for me to thank vincent david polita and of course kieran Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.